Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther, a podcast that was being broadcast from the Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the heart of Detroit, Michigan, and will again soon. My name is Dan Galadner, and I will be your host today, along with the incredible powerhouse of the archives, Troy Eller English. Say hello, Troy. Hey, Dan. <laughs> How you doing? Well, I'm just peachy. How are you? We're doing great. We're doing great. Uh, you know, as we get along with this pandemic and being isolated, everybody asks, how you doing? Everybody goes, eh, the same. It's fine. Nothing's changed. So that's basically it. Nothing's changed at all. <laughs> but um, Time is irrelevant now. <laughs> I have no idea what day is today. What is the day? I don't know. Is it a Monday? Is it a Tuesday? I don't know. All I know is... It's it's I have to podcast with you every once in a while. So that keeps me <laughs> that keeps me living and keep me happy. How's that? Excellent. Here we go. All right. On with the show intro. You know, you know, Troy, in 1993, 1,000 members of the SEIU met at local 250s Union Hall in Oakland, California, and founded the SEIU's Western Conference Lavender Caucus. And then a few years later in 1997, Pride at Work, an organization dedicated to defending and promoting the rights of queer workers formerly affiliated with the AFL-CIO. And in 1970, the American Federation of Teachers passed a resolu resolution through the Executive Council against discrimination based on sexual orientation. This is the first national union in the United States to pass such a resolution. These stories and others in are, in, are in our collections here at the Ruther Library, as well as across the nation. Queer history is all around us if we just take the time to understand various patterns in history and is very prevalent in the development of the modern labor movement. As Alan Burby found in Marine Cooks and Stewards Union while he was conducting his research, and Miriam Frank told us in her amazing book, Out in the Union, queer folk have been in every aspect of American work and being involved in forming democratic unions. And this research continues. In today's episode, we talked to James McQuaid, a doctoral candidate in history at Wayne State University and proud member of the Graduate Employees Organizing Committee, AFT Local 6123. We will discuss his research for his dissertation, which focuses on queer history in the UAW. Now, I was curious to learn more about, uh, from Jamie about the UAW and this history with LGBTQ rights, because they don't seem like the typical union to embrace queer folk rights in the workplace. Historically and statistically, it usually falls in the line with public employee unions. So that's why I was really glad to talk to Jamie about his research here today. So enjoy our special episode for Gay Pride Month. And please go to www.laborradionetwork.org, your one-stop shopping network to find all things related to labor. On with the show. <laughs> Hey Jamie, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, we're we're surviving. I'm in my basement, um, recording this in our COVID world. First of all, congratulations on all those awards you've been getting. That's excellent. Uh, thank you. I uh, I'm pretty happy with them myself. Not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> um so your la latest one is the one i read on a twitter feed that you guys were doing through the His wayne state university history department and that was uh on your research you discovered about women workers during world war ii through i guess through the 50s uh concerning gender norms um obviously of course we usually know the typical idea of the rosie the riveter in the factories and then when the gis came back they went back uh, the women workers went back to home but you uncovered some other things that uh, shed a new light on that. Could you uh, tell us about that? Sure, I'd love to. Um, yeah, a lot of times people kind of look at the the narrative of World War II and they see Rosie the Riveter and they see women entering the factories uh, kind of fulfilling this patriotic duty. And at the end of the war, when uh, a lot of them do go home, it's kind of glossed over the fact that they don't go home willingly. Uh, Coming up to the end of the war, a lot of women saw their jobs in jeopardy specifically with men returning from the war and getting preferential treatment and hiring and like issues of seniority. They were very worried because they uh, they saw that as a more or less an attack on their ability to live as independent citizens, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of women at the start of the war go to factories, not even just the big three, but uh, Briggs, Turnsteads, all of these plants in uh, upstate New York, 
in Detroit, but also out in California. And they provide women with a lot of uh, the income and the financial independence that, that a lot of them didn't really have before. And so once men start to return and they start to basically say, hey, we would like our jobs back, there's a lot of resistance on the part of working women to that. Um, so a good example of this uh, in terms of in terms of argumentation or articulating what you want or what you want to see happen uh, going forward, there was a a woman who uh, sh her name is Elizabeth Hawes, and she was working in uh, fashion design prior to the war. When the war started, though, she took a job in a airplane assembly factory in New York, and she started getting involved in the union movement. And she wrote actually a couple of books about her experiences as a woman uh, in a manufacturing environment. So women workers like Hawes wrote, uh, they wrote material that challenged the presumption that men were the sole breadwinner of the family, right? The standard social wisdom of the time was that women needed to stay home and that men were the breadwinners they provided for the family and that women more or less reared children, right? And Elizabeth Hawes and a lot of these union women in the 1940s and 1950s saw an entirely possible different world, right? They critiqued the system of reproductive labor where women basically, uh, they worked at home and they didn't really have any sort of external employment unless it was absolutely needed, like if you were in a lower income bracket. Elizabeth Hawes actually, she wrote a book called, she wrote two books. One was Why Women Cry and another book was... Uh, hurry up, please, it's time. And in those books, she actually said, hey, it's entirely possible that instead of the current system we have, maybe women can keep all of the, keep, can keep their jobs, which they find incredibly rewarding. You know, they're challenging. Uh, you have to think on your feet at some of these positions. They're not, you know, incredibly monotonous and we would like to keep them. Uh, but she said, instead of like returning home and giving up these jobs, why isn't it possible for men and women to share in reproductive labor, right? Why can't household chores, raising children uh, be shared more or less equally by husbands and wives in like a heterosexual marriage? And it's entirely possible that we could do that. And uh, both parents could also work and they could also have careers. Now, in 1945, a lot ideas. of people... Yeah, a lot of people dismiss this as a pretty radical idea, but these first writings, uh, which is kind of lumped in with this trend called labor feminism that emerges in between the first and second wave of feminism, if you uh, ascribe to like a wave description of feminism. Mm -hmm. But these labor feminist critiques of like the family unit and how uh, women should participate in society they inspired a lot of uh, influential writers who had come later, right? So Betty Friedan, who you may know, is wrote the feminist, uh, the feminine mystique, which is uh, sometimes credited with kind of kickstarting the second wave feminist movement. She read uh, Elizabeth Hawes's work and said, "I don't remember the exact quote, but she hoped that it would start a second American revolution coming from America's kitchens." Nice. And so, yeah, that uh, those contributions from women workers, even after they were being kind of forced out of work and they were resisting being forced out of these positions, they were substantially influencing and changing the way people looked at gender in society. Uh, but that's kind of like out in the discourse, right? Like uh, Elizabeth Hawes is writing books. She's influencing people who are also going to write books more on a, uh, on a shop floor aspect. Another good example of resistance to this kind of like retrenching of sexism in the workplace is Edith Van Horn. She started working in the defense plants during World War II. And like a lot of women, she enjoyed the fact that she had financial independence and security working in these positions. And so when male workers were coming back and these uh, plants were being retooled for a more civilian non-military economy, it's not like these companies were just blanket firing all women, right? Like, okay, well, it's 1945, here's your last check, go home. There was a very gradual process that women were resisting. And Edith Van Horn actually, well, for a while she worked at Goodyear, she worked in different unionizing efforts, and she eventually uh, was working in the auto industry at Dodge Main, uh, specifically in the wire room. And as, the, as one of the leaders of Dodge Main's Local 3, which is one of these one of the largest uh, union locals in the country at the time. She led a series of 
uh, work stoppages, wildcat strikes, basically to oppose efforts that were being taken by Chrysler, the company in charge of Dodge Main, where women were being pushed into lower paying job classifications. Uh, this was done mid-contract without any sort of negotiation. And so Edith Van Horn would like lead women and men out of these plants protesting these job reclassifications. And she was so successful that she actually got uh, Chrysler to kind of rescind some of its more egregious reclassifications hmm. and pay cuts for women. Hmm. Now, Chrysler ultimately was able at the time to capitalize on the Red Scare, and they were able to fire Horn and a lot of other activist women for participating in work stoppages. Um, but Edith Van Horn and a, and a lot of her activist cohort found a lot of support among rank and file workers. There was one altercation where the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee, or HWAC, you know, part of the, the McCarthyite uh, movement, had come to Detroit and they were going to start interviewing people who had been accused of being communists during the war or prior to the war in the middle of the Red Scare. And Edith Van Horn was an individual who was named by the HUAC, basically saying, you know, hey, we would like to talk to her and see if she is, in fact, a communist. This information was printed on the cover of the Detroit Free Press. There was a kerfuffle uh, at Dodge Main, and some more conservative workers stormed into the wire room and tried to throw her out the window. Now, keep in mind, the wire room, uh, Dodge Main was a big plant. It's not these uh, single-story sprawling complexes anymore with lateral production. It was a multi-story building. Um, they tried to throw her out the window, but women uh, and some of the other stewards in Local 3 interceded on her behalf and escorted her safely out to the front of the plant. Now, because of this incident, Dodge Main was actually, Chrysler was able to fire her for this work stoppage specifically. Uh, but she went in front of Hwok and was, uh, she basically cleared her name after being accused of being a communist. And while she wasn't able to return to work at Dodge Main, the amount of support she had among the rank and file at that plant meant that she was able to return to the UAW and uh, work with them on a number of pro-women initiatives until her eventual retirement. Wow, that's an amazing story. Seriously. Um, and then you have one other, uh, one other example of, um, from Billy Hill. Yes. Yeah, so uh, this research that I did for the Otis Ryder Symposium this past April is kind of, uh, it splits in two ways, right? So there's a historian named uh, John D'Amelio who says that for the United States, World War II was a, a coming out moment. And I like extending this coming out moment, not only to gay men who were serving in the military and who uh, in homosocial environments were starting to interact with one another, but also uh, for women working in a homosocial environment in, in, the, in the plants. So we see a coming out per se of, of labor feminism, uh, which is influencing this eventual emergence of second wave feminism, but we also see lesbian identity being constructed uh, on the shop floor during this time. And so Billy Hill and then another woman, Mabel Stewart Merritt, I covered uh, in a little bit of detail. And they, came to Detroit during the war to participate in wartime production. And they came up uh, against some pretty rampant sexism. Billy Hill, mm -hmm. specifically, she didn't necessarily want to uh, work on the line. Uh, she did want to become a supervisor eventually. And so she took a job at a plant, uh, a Ford plant on the west side of the city. She was in an initial cohort of about seven women and seven men. And they were told, you know, hey, we're going to teach you how to build these uh, engines for the, I believe it was the B-25 bomber. We're going to teach you how to build these engines. You're going to get the line down. And then eventually we're going to hire in more people. And then you're going to be supervising them. Well, time comes to hire more people. And all of the men are promoted to supervisors. And all of the women are, they remain on the line. Billy Hill's pretty upset. She's like, I didn't come to Detroit so that I could work on the line. I wanted to be a foreman. I wanted to be a supervisor. And so she uh, confronts her, her supervisor about this. You know, she, like I wanted to, uh, to come here to be a foreman. I'm going to do this or I'm going to leave. And so for a, for a long time, she was told repeatedly, okay, well, when a job opens up, we'll put you there. Um, we just, we don't have enough people. We don't need another foreman yet, but you're next on the list. Well, eventually they have her training an individual who is a man 
like we want him to we want you to train him uh for your job and when he's good and ready we'll promote you and so she trains him in good faith and once he has her job down they promote him to be a supervisor yeah and so she walks right she's like i'm not going back well as it turns out, you don't have to be a man to be good at your job. She was very good at her job. And so the company sent a couple of people to her house, basically saying, hey, when are you going to come back to work? You need to come back to work. She's like, I'm not going to. Well, could you please? And so they promise her, all right, well, we'll, uh, we'll basically make sure you're not working any of, under any of these foremen men, right? You'll be a technician on the line that's kind of like helping everyone else. And eventually we'll revisit this foreman issue. And she sees a couple of job, a uh, couple of guys get promoted uh, ahead of her uh, during this second period. And so she eventually leaves again. But she goes to a new plant in Highland Park where there are a lot more women. And she's able to kind of interact in a social, a homosocial environment. And she starts going to lesbian bars in and around the neighborhood. And it's at that point that she realizes that like, oh, okay, so there are other people who are like me, right? Right. A lot of women coming into these plants may have had same-sex attractions to other women, but because of the way society was run, because of how women were kind of uh, pushed out of public space a lot of the time, that was just not an aspect of themselves that they ever had the liberty to explore. And once they were financially independent, they had their own jobs, and they could meet other women, suddenly you see, you see the emergence of a wartime lesbian community that starts to take shape. Oh. Wow, that's very interesting. You know what? This is a nice segue. Why don't you? All right, part of your your whole research and dissertation is is uh, the queer history within the UAW, correct? Right, right. So, all right, this is a great segue. Then, this, let's. Why don't you give us a quick, brief overview of queer history from I don't know within the union movements. I don't know. I guess from the you know up like the 1930s up to about Stonewall, so we can get a better picture of what we're looking at here. I can do that. It is incredibly <laughs> tricky, though. and uh, I'm sure it is. It weaves in and out of, of our consciousness, doesn't it? A narrative right. of history. Yeah. Well, even specifically before Stonewall, the, uh, the LGBTQ community is remarkably different, right? Um, in the course of my research and reading other people's research as well, uh, Miriam Frank has a really good book called Out in the Union, and she mm -hmm. starts it uh, discussing a person who was born as a woman in Galveston, Texas. And at the age of 13 in 1900, for those of you who don't know, there was a pretty horrendous hurricane that hit Galveston. It's, uh, I think, the most fatality-inducing hurricane in U.S. history. Right. But this individual, her, her home, her entire family is destroyed. She loses all of her relatives. And so um, at the age of 13 in 1900, she dresses as a man and she heads north to find work. And uh, by 1902, she's actually living in St. Louis as an apprentice with the Boilermakers. Now, Miriam Frink uh, believes that she probably was involved in locomotive engine repairs, and St. Louis was this pretty big rail hub. Um, but this individual, like, uh, we don't know if they, uh, if they put on male clothes and assumed a male identity. This person uh, claimed to be a man named Bill. Right. So we don't know if Bill was actually what we would call transgender today or if he was just wearing men, men's clothes and uh, taking jobs that men worked at for the sake of financial security. But he was so respected by his union brothers that he was elected secretary of his lodge and he maintained that position until 1909 when he admitted that he was born a woman. Um, you know, potentially he was outed also, but he ended mm -hmm. up going back to identifying as a woman after he left the lodge. It's, you know, it, because of this, it's kind of difficult to find union, union advocacy of queer people in the past because it's pretty fairly recent in historical terms that sexual and gender transgression uh, and difference are articulated as solid identities. For most of the American past, uh, gender and sexuality transgression, or what we would call queerness, mm. it's, it was largely seen as an act, right? So way in the past, uh, you were a sinner if you engaged in this act that was a, a temptation and you would be dealt with, you know, accordingly. And later on, but still in the pretty recent past, with the advent of like medical professionalization, psychology, there was this institutionalization of a, of a study known as sexology that's not necessarily as prevalent today. Mm -hmm. But they all viewed kind of this uh, gender and sexuality transgression as... Uh, 
as a facet of mental illness, right? Or that you were an inverted third gender that didn't really, uh, that wasn't like entirely natural or correct. Right. And so George Chauncey actually has a pretty fascinating book called Gay New York. And in that, he even talks about how up until 1940, we don't see the same kind of homo and hetero or cis trans binaries that we have today. Even then, like uh, queerness or gayness or however you want to refer to it as, it was largely performative. So if you were in a same-sex relationship, you could still be straight as long as you were, you know, quote unquote, the man, right? As long as you wore the pants. Sure. And so there are instances of, uh, of men working in homosocial working environments like plants in Detroit, say, for example, who continued to maintain that they were straight, even though they were having same-sex encounters because they claimed, well, I'm wearing the pants, so it's different. But you can find some of these things in, in archives, right? You can find them in old contracts. Uh, you can find them in grievance reports uh, that suggest this kind of earlier mode of identification where it was more based on performativity and not as a static identity that becomes kind mm -hmm. of more solidified in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, for example, there was a... Uh, a UAW contract I found in the Ruther. And, you know, I can't explicitly state that this is the cause of it, but there was an initial draft of workshop rules that says, all right, sex between workers not allowed, it's a terminable offense. Well, there was a closed discussion between plant management and then a revised contract was adopted. And one of the changes in the new contract was that uh, sexual relations between members of the opposite sex was a fireable offense. Really? Yeah, and it's like, okay, so why did that need to be specified? Exactly. It suggests something deeper there. It does. Um, it does suggest that things were going on. Hmm. Right. But in terms of uh, of official union advocacy prior to Stonewall, it's pretty scant. I think the most uh, notable example is the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union, which Alan Barube uh, researched pretty heavily and talked about in his book. Um, it was posthumously published, but My Desire for History. He talks about how the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union organized uh, queer workers on uh, ocean cruise liners in the, in the Pacific primarily, leaving out of California, places like San Francisco, Los Angeles. They had a pretty powerful alliance with the longshoremen. And specifically, the MCS, the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union, had this uh, this turn of phrase that said, for solidarity, no red baiting, no race baiting, and no queen baiting. Wow. Right. What that means is, you know, if we're going to survive as a union in a pink collar industry, right? So a predominantly mm -hmm. feminine, effeminate uh, profession, which is not usually uh, unionized during this time. If we're going to survive as this time, type of union... We can't let people divide us on political beliefs, right? If you're a communist, it doesn't matter. It's America and you have a right to free speech. That's red baiting. Civil rights is still an issue. We don't want to be divided along race. That's race baiting. And then queen baiting um, is this idea that like, hey, if someone is this, you know, inverted third gender or gay or however else we're referring to it, we can't divide workers on that either. And because of MCS's policy, working in those cruise liners was an incredibly, um, I don't want to say fulfilling and happy experience because being gender and tra sexuality transgressive at the time could still be incredibly risky and incredibly harmful to you depending on like social responses, but it made it a lot more tolerable and it made life a lot more secure for people who were out with their queerness. Right. right. Whatever happened with this, uh, with this union, um, did they fall away to the, QAC committees, or um, I mean, it's really, they're not really out there with labor history there. So what right. happened to them? It is pretty unfortunate. They do not last long after the war, and that definitely is owed to its, uh, its red baiting, right? The fact mm -hmm. that they would not expel communists from their organization meant that they were not a part, they could not remain a part of the CIO, which said, you know, hey, you need to basically get communists out of your leadership if you're going to be a part of our labor federation. And so because they failed to do that, a rival union was set up that did, not, that did allow for red baiting and some other forms of discrimination. And so their membership dwindled until they disbanded in the mid-50s. Yeah, that sounds about right with some of the uh, other kind of locals and unions that accepted um, communists within their regimes. It didn't discriminate. And they were you know, set upon by not only the CIO or AFL, 
uh, under pressure to get rid of them. The dual unions started popping up to get rid of them. That's very common. But that's just a shame that they 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 disappeared from our history. But you're bringing it back, and other people are bringing it back, which is awesome. Um, so let's jump into the 70s. This is where things start. Uh, this, all these different waves of liberalism starts hitting into the 70s with feminism. Um, public employee rights are getting into the, the front page of the newspapers of what, what teachers want, what sanitation workers want. But also you have a rise of um, homosexual rights are really getting gear it up again. Your story about Gary Kapanowski at the Briggs Beautyware shop in Sterling Heights, Michigan is, is a great example of what not only solidarity within the workers, but also um, deflecting and breaking down that masculinity bias toward homosexuals. Uh, can you tell us that story? I'd love to. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Briggs Beautyware, of course, started off as the Briggs Automotive Company, right? Up until the 1950s, they were a pretty major player in Detroit. Um, the originally Tiger Stadium was called Briggs Stadium from 1938 to like 1960. And Briggs actually contributed to auto design in the U.S. pretty heavily. They're kind of that company is credited with introducing the idea of the closed body concept for cars. So prior to Briggs emerging on the scene, you know, you have this Model T with the flat windshield. But, you know, if a bird wants to land on you, it's going to do that. There's not really a roof or doors. So that uh, that incentive really makes Briggs a pretty major player. And they were also fairly ruthless employers, right? Uh, Briggs was pretty well renowned for uh, doing any and everything needed to quash unionization efforts. And because of that, they were target to of some of the UAW's first organizing efforts, right? Some of them led by Victor Ruther himself. But by the early 1970s, most of their operation was bought out by Chrysler. And the only exception is they had this stamping plant in Sterling Heights. It was for stamping and molding. And they mostly made bathtubs and other bathtub like appliances, fixtures, you know, sinks, these sorts of things. But they would occasionally do extra work for Chrysler when it was needed. And because Chrysler, because the UAW had uniformly organized Briggs, these workers at the beauty plant were still under a UAW contract. They were part of local 212. So at this point in time, right, Kapanowski is a gay man. He's not out, but he's going to school at Wayne State for early childhood education. And he works at Briggs to cover kind of like the expenses of tuition, uh, board, books, these sorts of things. We have millennial uh, listeners. Wages had a lot higher purchasing power back then and tuition was much cheaper. So this was something you could do. Um, and he was also active in, in the student movement against the war. So he's involved in the student movement. He's definitely involved in liberation struggles, but he really gets involved in the, in the union movement when he starts hearing rumors around his shop that Briggs is going to shut down and relocate somewhere down south, right? And the 1970s right. is a pretty big phenomenon. It's uh, runaway shops, deindustrialization. Um, the south, southern states, uh, many of them at least, authored, offered uh, lower unionization rates, la more lax regulations and tax incentives to relocate. And so a lot of producers ended up going to the Sun Belt around this time. And so once these rumors start coming out, Kapinowski decides, well, I'm going to run for a seat on the bargaining committee for the next round of contract negotiations. They're coming up in 1971 or 1972, I believe. And I should uh, get on that committee so I can put language in the contract that requires Briggs not to leave, right? If I have a, a non-runaway shop clause in there, we can save everyone's job. It was actually a pretty close election, right? Uh, Kapanowski had a lot of support specifically because he wanted to add this clause. Um, but when the actual election day hit, there were some irregularities, right? There was a there was a train that was parked on the tracks for two hours while drivers were taking the uh, the ballot boxes from Sterling Heights to Solidarity House to be counted. Kapanowski says that's a really good opportunity for ballot stuffing. I say it's probably a good opportunity, but again, it's nothing we can prove. But regardless of what happens in the uh, in the election process, Kapanowski loses by a pretty close margin. He doesn't give up, though. He still campaigns to have this language added to the contract. Um, he's really pressuring a lot, of, uh, along with a lot of his uh, co-workers, to have the committee keep this language in the contract, to really press for it. 
But Briggs, you know, swears up and down, left and right, that they not, they're not going to move. There are no plans to move. They would never move. They're tied to the community. So the issue gets dropped. Um, before the Xerox is even cold, uh, they do announce they are, in fact, building a new facility in Knoxville, Tennessee, and they're going to be relocating uh, probably by 1975. Wow. Right. So workers can move with the company, but you won't have a union there. Um, wages will be about 40% of they were originally, right? In Sterling Heights, Briggs was paying workers $5 an hour. And in Knoxville, it's going to be a little over $2 an hour. And uh, things like healthcare, you know, that's not going to come cheap. So Kapanowski mm -hmm. now decides, well, what else can I do? There are shop committee chairman elections coming up. You know, I can run for chairman of the shop committee. And maybe that way we can still make sure that... Uh, Briggs leave if you know if Briggs is determined to leave, maybe we can amend some of our um, contract language to get workers like kind of a, a fair share uh, in this departure, right? Because this previous contract had been negotiated under the auspices that the company is going to stay. So things like pensions are not really uh, paid attention to that closely, and now they're incredibly important. So. Kapanowski runs for chairman of the shop committee, but in doing this, he's upsetting a lot of the incumbent local leadership who's that are, you know, as he claimed, was pretty uh, cozy with the company itself. Whether or not that's true, again, I, that's not something that comes up in the archives necessarily. But he is uh, pretty thoroughly harassed by his opponents, right? He's stalked at work. Um, in a lot of these sorts of homosocial environments, you have same-sex encounters, and so in the course of this stalking, one of his romantic interest, who is a Polish man, is outed, um, and I believe he ends up having to leave the state. Hmm. Uh, some of his opponents attempt to frame him for possession of narcotics and distribution of pornography. Um, he's at a party in Sterling Heights and is arrested by the police department. And uh, they told him kind of they tell him kind of off the record, you know, hey, if you drop out of the election and name names of people who are in your caucus will drop charges, right? He instead goes to a lawyer and this lawyer eventually gets him uh, released and these charges are dropped. But even then, the day before this election is supposed to take place, he comes into the plant and there are orange and black uh, flyers papered everywhere. And they basically say, you know, Kapanowski, well, they refer to him as his nickname, right? He has this long kind of bowl cut. So his nickname is Beetle. So they <laughs> say, you know, Beetle is a expletive describing gay people do you want one of those to be your chairman of the shop committee it's all it says it's everywhere um so he's outed at work right and he works uh, a lot of these plants were actually pretty tied to the community so it's not just a bunch of co-workers his father works there his uncle works there there's cousins mm -hmm. who work there so he's been outed to his family as well obviously he gets home that night and there are some pretty uh tough discussions going on Mm -hmm. And he honestly is considering, you know, do I even go back into work tomorrow? Is it worth it? Should I just give up right now? He ultimately does decide to go back into work, though, right? He's, you know, I got my tools there. They're not cheap, and I might as well clear my stuff out. But he comes into a surprise at work. He went, he actually wins the election by about a two to one margin. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Um, there's a couple of different, uh, there's a couple of different people running. It's not like he carries 66% of the vote, but this opponent who had outed him uh, is the second best candidate and he does twice as good as him. Wow. So this, uh, this emphasis on working class solidarity, on uh, fighting the company on behalf of union brothers and sisters, regardless of your orientation, really rings home for a lot of workers at this plant. Yeah. So he's now, uh, he's now chair of the shop committee. A lot of his allies are actually elected into shop committee positions as well. And they really start getting to work. Um, they start sharing resources with other dissident movements like uh, DRUM, the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement they're pretty heavily allied with. Mm -hmm. They're not a part of DRUM. They're a part of a different caucus known as the UNC or United National Caucus. But they're one of these movements in the 1970s that's pushing for more democratization in the UAW and for more uh, transparency. Now, the UAW is actually kind of put into a little bit of a bind here because the committee starts violating a lot of the contract that had been negotiated with Briggs. So if you were to ask Gary Kapanowski, you know, how can you 
uh, violate this contract, which has things like mandatory overtime in it, he would turn around and say, well, we had a verbal promise that this company wasn't going to leave. So the company's already broken the contract. Right. So Kapanowski and the shop committee start telling people, you know, don't show up for overtime shifts. Don't work more than 40 hours a week. Um, we're going to start having meetings and demonstrations. We're going to draw public awareness to this. There's, they pool funds together and uh, try to challenge the, the departure of the plant in court. Hmm. Um, it's thrown out by, by the judge, unfortunately, but he's kind of following a, uh, a legacy that was initially set down by local 600, right? When they were challenging some of uh, some similar closures, but the UAW needs to maintain organizational discipline because kind of like the, the UAW gets its power to negotiate with the company based on, you know, Hey, we can call a strike and we can end it. If the UAW doesn't carry authority over those matters, then why would the company negotiate with them? So ultimately what the UAW does is they put the local at uh, Briggs under receivership. That's when the international or the, the main union steps in and says, you know, the leadership of this local isn't adhering to the constitution. They're not adhering to the contract. We're excusing them and we're just going to run things directly until there's a new election. Gotcha. So Gary, there's a um, trial at Solidarity House. Gary Kapanowski is told that he's no longer uh, shop committee chairman and that have to report uh, back to mandatory overtime shifts. And this is basically, you know, the union movement is coming under a concerted attack from seemingly all sides at this moment. And so they're kind of trying to, to circle the wagons is probably a good axiom here. Mm -hmm. But again, Gary Kapanowski has this, this moment of, you know, oh, dang, do I go back into work? Like this is, you know, again, a pretty crushing defeat. For the second time, though, you know, you leave your tools in your locker. They're not cheap. Go in and get them. And so he goes into work the next day, and everyone is standing out in the parking lot. All the workers refuse to enter the huh. they refuse to enter the plant and resume work until Gary Kapanowski is reinstated and the company negotiates with the UAW about their contract. Right. And so that's exactly what happens. The UAW reinstates Gary Kapanowski. By the end of the day, the company is talking to the local and eventually an agreement is reached where Briggs says, okay, well, we're not, we are still leaving, but we're going to do things like put another million dollars into the pension fund, right? For the workers that aren't coming with us. And a million dollars in the 1970s is, you know, is pretty big. Um, and there are some other things. There are some other things that come about as well. Basically, like how long are shifts going to last? So the company's forced to make a number of concessions, and this is possible because of wildcat strikes that are led by queer auto workers like Kapanowski. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I think it's also point important to point out the company that was the successor to Briggs, right, in Knoxville, despite the fact that they that facility never had a union, um, and their wages were lower than they were then. Uh, states uh, in the Midwest, for example, or the Northeast, despite all of those uh, maintained concessions a few years ago, back in 2014, I believe, that company left Knoxville behind and they relocated to South America to basically take advantage of even cheaper labor. God, they keep going further, further south, don't they? Mm -hmm. Anything to get rid of, uh, to get rid of workers with a voice. <laughs> exactly. Um, that is an amazing story and needs to be told so much more. And that's why this podcast is going to be broadcast uh, nationwide on this story. And, and what's, what's, what's really, really cool about this, this story is like at the same time, out in the West Coast, you have Harvey Milk forming this coalition with the Teamsters in San Francisco about the course boycott, then building that community further with the uh, Brig, um, with, with um, what, what was that, the, uh, the Briggs Initiative. Yes, um, unrelated to Briggs Manufacturing, but I was just about to say, yeah, completely unrelated. But uh, that name was like really to be harkened now within uh, queer history and labor history. Um, what dynamic shifts do you see with traditional blue collar male oriented union workforces siding with the gay community in the seventies? What, what is what is what's the story going on here? What's 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 happening? You know, it's really interesting, and I think there there's honestly a lot going on. Right. I think the first is that following 1969, um, queer people like uh, gays, lesbians, uh, LGBTQ people, they've always been uh, visible to some degree. But following Stonewall, you do have like a, a national movement for the acknowledgement of like 
of at least some limited forms of rights and some semblance of uh, equality and respect. And this visibility really affects uh, the attitudes of people who might have never thought about gay or lesbian or transgender rights before now, right? So mm -hmm. if you have a coworker who's gay or a coworker who's a lesbian, it might be a lot easier to pick on them if your child does not come out as, as gay. But once that visibility is there, once you intimately know people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans, or queer, it's a lot harder to maintain that same kind of distancing and otherness of people based on that aspect of, of their identity. And so I think the visibility of the queer community played a pretty big part. But also, you know, women are increasingly moving into the workforce during this time. Toxic masculinity is still present. And I think with the arrival of uh, a lot of women into uh, professional trades, it can become even more pronounced, but it's tolerated on a consistent basis less and less. And this, the toleration of this toxic masculinity also coincides with uh, tolerance for homophobia, right? This idea of masculine gay panic that we can't have gays working with us because what if it's transmissible? Right. Um, so there's a demographic shift as well as a, a shift in visibility. But then, you know, really getting into the labor history aspect of it, deindustrialization and job insecurity are huge. Uh, there's an there's a axiom that I love to say ironically that hard times make hard men. Um, and I think there's something true to that. You know, some I think a lot of people, uh, contrary to what they think about labor organizing, some of the most daring and successful unionization efforts happen in the worst economic times. I mean, just yeah, look yeah. at the CIO in the 1930s and the Great Depression. Yeah. Um, yeah. In times of duress, people are less likely to focus on issues like sexuality when their immediate livelihoods are at stake. And in the early 1970s and onward, that's it remains a pressing issue. And the fact that so many workers are put out of work by deindustrialization, that unions are increasingly under such a concerted attack, I think just uh, anti-homosexual or anti-queer bias, right? Anti-trans bias on the part of a lot of blue collar workers just becomes less of an issue that they care about necessarily. And so all of these factors kind of just contribute to that, to that shift. So, um, it's interesting is like here in 1979, the AFL-CIO finally puts into the language into their constitution about a sexual orientation. So you're saying throughout the 70s, the AFL-CIO finally recognized it. But then you have the 80s and there seems to be a quietness. There seems to be something that's not moving forward. Even though we have these economic crises going on and um, especially tax on labor, um, was this a backlash? Um, was this something that... Uh, no one wanted to talk about anymore or with the AIDS crisis, does this bring in another area of where people are uncomfortable talking about uh, sexual awareness? Right. I think that AIDS and the AIDS crisis definitely played a big role of it, right? Um, by 1979, the AFL-CIO recognizes uh, the rights uh, of, of gay people at work in this Constitution, right? They they amend uh, language in the Constitution for sexual orientation. That doesn't come out of like beneficent leadership necessarily. It's not like the AFL CIO is sitting there and they say, "Okay, well now officially we'll do this because uh, it's expedient." But queer workers and activists who are allied with them, it's made. It's a demand that's made, right? And beginning in the 1980s. Uh, queer activism specifically has to be redirected to the HIV AIDS crisis because so many people um, are dying and there's not a lot of national leadership to address the pandemic. That's not to say necessarily that like the union movement in starting in 1980 just did not like, uh, did not like gay people. I think that when you look at individuals like Lane Kirkland or earlier, you know, George Meany, they're socially conservative and they don't see gay rights as an issue. Uh, George Meany famously at the 1972, I think he said of the 1972 Democratic Convention, uh, there was a push to have gay rights added to the party platform. And later on, he he goes to a steelworkers uh, convention. He goes to the USW convention and he uh, kind of decries the the gay liberation movement, right? You know, I, mm -hmm. uh, I love the quote. He says, uh, we 
heard from Jacks who wanted to be like Jills and had the air of Johns about them, kind of like referencing gay cruising. God. <laughs> just, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, Mr. Meany. But right. in right. the 1980s, yeah, a lot of, a lot of the F, uh, resources of the LGBTQ community has to be directed elsewhere. And so that demand isn't as prescient. But that being said, um, while we're talking about the queer history of the UAW specifically, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the 1980s, despite this general lull, the, uh, the UAW organizes village voice workers uh, in New York City, right? It's a newspaper. And in their first contract, uh, the UAW makes sure that all of these workers at the village voice have domestic partnership benefits in their contract. That's actually the first union negotiated contract with domestic partner benefits in American history. And it's actually the second employment contract with domestic partner benefits in American history outside of a uh, progressive co-op in Oregon that had been agreed to like two months earlier. And that might seem small because the Village Voice didn't have a massive staff, but when you think about the 1980s and what is going on, um, we didn't have the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? So if you came out and said, hey, I am um, HIV positive, your job is 100% going to fire you. Right. And so that meant that if you, uh, if your domestic partner, if your loved one was uh, let go from their job because they were HIV positive because they came down with AIDS, you could still make sure they had medical care because you had a contract with the UAW at the Village Voice. Right, exactly. Um, so there is that solidarity. And also, you know, uh, the National Writers Union, which affiliated with the UAW in 1981, was incredibly uh, pro-LGBTQ rights. Actually, some of their uh, members include uh, trans activists like Leslie Feinberg, who is influential in the, in the queer movement. And they've only very recently disaffiliated from the, from the UAW, regrettably. Well, that, that brings up things. The first, um, it was like 1989, where the first uh, triad at a convention to include that kind of language into the UAW constitution was introduced and the National Writers Union was pushing for it, if I'm mm -hmm. correct. And then you have um, Pride at Work um, developing at the AFL-CIO. So it was, you're right, it, there, there was conversations going, the people were still, the rank and file were still um, dealing with it, but, and this, so they were building up to this moment and it seems like then it all of a sudden spurred into the 90s where you had more language introduced and there was some sort of movement within the UAW to change their constitution. Um, do you want to talk about that a bit more? Is like how that finally evolved in 1996 with uh, Ron Wood? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, Ron Wood's actually, uh, I don't believe he was out at work when he was kind of thrust into the position of activism. Um, he lived in Royal Oak and uh, worked for Chrysler. And he heard on the news at one point that Cracker Barrel was going to be opening up locations in Michigan, right, before Cracker Barrel had kind of made headway up here. And Cracker Barrel had actually gotten some national media attention uh, because they had a blanket policy of firing anyone who was homosexual, right? On your termination paper, if it said, like, reason for firing, like, there's uh, photographs of these documents that say because employee is, a, you know, either an mm -hmm. expletive or just gay. Right. And so Ron Woods went to the UAW and said, they're firing people for these reasons. This is a union issue, right? And his uh, local steward says, well, yeah, it is. So uh, if you would like to go protest it, if you would like to go protest it on behalf of the UAW, go ahead. Uh, and so he does this. and. There's an article written about him in the Detroit Free Press that a lot of his coworkers who were a little more, you know, masculine and, um, you know, the good old boys, they see this article and they didn't know he was gay. And so he starts facing a lot of workplace harassment. And what he finds out and what other activists like Martha Gravatt, um, who encountered similar experiences, find out is that the existing uh, contractual and constitutional, like, uh, basically these safeguards that are put in place for queer workers just aren't enough. And so they actually kick off an entire movement with uh, Pride at Work. Martha Gravatt and I think Ron Woods both were at the founding convention in 1994 for the mm -hmm. 25th anniversary of Stonewall. But 
kind of leading people around uh, Pride at Work in Michigan and in Ohio, they build a campaign against Chrysler kind of with tacit UAW support um, to have non-discrimination language added to their contracts. And then uh, there's also kind of this co concurrent push to add uh, non-discrimination language to the UAW's constitution. The argument isn't necessarily in the UAW, do you know queer workers have a right to job security and a freedom from discrimination? There's just a disagreement on, you know, is the language enough? And okay. as time goes on and as a lot of the transgressions and like attacks on queer workers start to become documented by Ron Woods and Gravatt, it quickly becomes clear that the language isn't enough. And I think the UAW responds accordingly following that. Um, between 1994 with the founding of Pride at Work and 1999, when the UAW gets the big three to agree to a domestic partnership feasibility study, you mm -hmm. have such a rapid pace of, of progressive change going on in the UAW. And it's really interesting to see. It is interesting because UAW doesn't fit the mold of most of the other unions that, um, that that are more open to gay rights like a public usually public employee or those with a majority women right um uaw is still male oriented doesn't fit the dynamic blue collar um it's it's amazing and how do you see why, why all of a sudden this the uaw is really open to this idea um was there a change in leadership was it pressure from rank and file or was it both I definitely see the pressure from rank and file. I have not gone through the archives quite enough yet to see a change in leadership, but, um, and it's entirely possible that, that there was a substantial change in leadership that, that contributed to this. But I remember there was a story from uh, Joni Christian um, worked at the, the uh, Lordstown plant in Ohio. Mm -hmm. This is in the 1970s, right? She was originally like, she wasn't born Johnny Christian. She was born a man named Johnny Sasek. But Johnny Sasek was transgender. And in the 1970s, uh, she paid to have reassignment surgery, right? She was out of work for a month. She told uh, her union, this is why I'm going to be gone. And when I come back, this is who I'm going to be. And the local leadership there was incredibly supportive. There was actually a backlash to her return uh, to work as a woman from some of the rank and file women um, who were working at that plant who circled a petition saying, basically, we don't want to share a restroom with her. Oh. They presented it to the local leadership and the leadership actually turned around and says, we're throwing away this petition. She's your union sister and we're not going to hear any more of this. Uh, they started instituting uh, sensibility trainings to the local membership and over time, Joni Christian was accepted by her peers and she was able to work there her full 30 years before she retired in 1999 with her full pension. That again is an amazing story. Here, here is like the, the locals leadership is saying, don't look beyond everything. This is a brother and sister. This is union solidarity. doesn't matter who or what you are. So maybe also this just ties in with the UAW progressive history. I mean, always been a progressive union, and it's, it's kind of like in, in, in UAW blood to, uh, to recognize these kind of issues. I don't know. I'm kind of throwing things out there. No, I, I think you're exactly right. You know, I think you can look back on the past and you can definitely document uh, shortcomings, right? When we talk about um, Walter Ruther, there are criticisms leveled uh, against him from, you know, the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement and these dissident groups. And I don't think that those that those criticisms uh, are unwarranted. But at the same time, it's worth noting that, you know, Ruther was perfectly accepting of Olga Madar and her relationships, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. he had no problem advocating for her to be the first female vice president of the UAW. There you go. That's true. All right. So part of all our, our podcasts always at the end with our researchers is like, what kind of collections were you using? Where archives have you been looking into finding these these these, these great stories that you're telling me. Um, and, you know, I'm adding in another little thing to our, this, our usual template question on what kind of research or where you're doing your archives. How is the COVID-19 pandemic either helping or hindering your research right now? Uh, definitely hindering right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> right. 
No, my uh, my initial plan when I was going through comprehensives this past semester was, you know, the moment April 16th hits, the day after I, you know, hopefully, you know, fingers were crossed past uh, my oral defense, the moment that happens, I'm going to start going to the, the Ruther and I'm going to start doing more research. And a lot of the archives are closed now. And I think that that's definitely a good thing. We want to socially distance and prevent the spread of this disease as much as possible. As a queer historian, I can't stress the need for that enough. Right. Um, but it has definitely stymied my ability to kind of look at some of these documents and advance my research. I've just had to direct what I'm doing um, towards other things. I think that it's definitely, I'm going to have to spend more time than the traditional amount of allotted time uh, for research because of it. But I know that my department, uh, the history department at Wayne State has been incredibly supportive and I know that they're pretty flexible on this sorts of things, um, on these sorts of things. I know other grad students are a lot less like, are a lot less lucky though, uh, and my That's heart goes out for them. That's a shame. There should always be an, there should be an asterisk on all research for this year of delaying things. But where have you been before uh, the COVID-19 epidemic uh, pandemic hit? Um, were, were you mostly doing your research in the Ruther Library or what kind of, and what kind of collections were you using there? I know you've gone elsewhere too. So yeah. please share with our, our listeners uh, where you're finding these great, great uh, archives. The Ruther archive is actually a huge source for me. Like uh, Gary Kapanowski's story, he was uh, willing to talk with me on the phone for, for many hours. And I am so thankful for that because I was asking many, many questions of him. But after that interview, I was able to go into the Ruther and uh, his entire story essentially uh, just saw in paper format in the Region 1B records for the mm. UAW. Mm. Um, there is uh, the personal records of an individual named Ed Liska. He was uh, involved in some gay rights organizations in the metropolitan Detroit area. And as a gay man himself, like his documentation of what went on inside the plants is incredibly, um, it's interesting, it's compelling, and it's really helpful in kind of steering future research questions. Like, how do I look for sources? Okay. Uh, Edith Van Horn's papers were remarkable to read just from a feminist and labor historian perspective, not even as a queer historian perspective. Uh, same thing with Olga Madar's work. A lot of times when you're doing research on, on queer workers specifically, because there is this, for, most, for such uh, an amount of history, there's this desire to remain somewhat hidden to protect your own personal internal, uh, internal identity. Mm -hmm. It doesn't show up in a lot of uh, major collections, but looking at grievance reports is a really good uh, spot to find instances of a queer worker going to their steward and saying, this person is harassing me and I demand that it be stopped. And then sometimes we even see their follow up there, which is always really good to see. Um, other than the Ruther, I've done a lot of research, or I've done a lot of research in East Lansing and in Flint. Ann Arbor has uh, the Bentley Library, which has had a couple of collections related to the United National Caucus that have been helpful. Mm -hmm. Event, you know, and eventually because of the pandemic, I have not been there yet, but I'm looking forward to going through the Temament Library in New York City. And then in Toronto, there is a, a place called the Archive, spelled with a Q, and it specializes in queer history in uh, North America. Oh, cool. Okay. So, yeah, once this gets lifted up, you'll be, you'll be traveling. That'd be awesome. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> we, we, actually, we all are. Jamie, I really appreciate the time you took with us. Uh, I really enjoyed the stories you were telling. And this is a definitely needed history that needs to be explored more within labor, uh, the labor history movement. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. 
To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Please go to www.laborradionetwork.org. Your one-stop shopping for networks. Let me start that over. Um, last semester was a pretty interesting time to go through comprehensive exams, but I made it. So if I can do that, <laughs> you can do anything. <laughs> right, pretty close. And I think one story that you have in uh, Metropole blog about uh, Gary Kempanski. Okay, I'm going to say so you can laugh as much as you want. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Gary Kapanowski has this this moment of, oh crap, what am I going to do? Like, I don't know if I can say crap on a podcast. I'm sorry. It's our podcast. You can say crap as much as you like. <laughs> Gary Kapanowski says, you know, oh dang, I. Uh... <laughs>